0: Welcome to Inside the Banjoverse, a podcast exploring Roots Music's great artists. Please do rate and subscribe, it makes a huge difference, and let all your friends know to listen. This is Enda Scal from Irish bluegrass crossover band We Banjo 3. Before you freak out, don't worry, there's actually four of us, and mostly just one banjo. That's me. Tony Trishka is a true legend of five-string banjo. 23 albums, two Grammy nominations, multiple IBMA awards, 15 tutorial books on the banjo. Fifteen? I thought I was great writing too. I really resonated with Tony as a bit of a banjo renegade, constantly pushing the boundaries of tradition, innovating and experimenting along the way. Tony's latest album, Shall We Hope, he describes as a dramatised listening experience. It invites the audience into the lives of characters from America's civil war as they grapple with the hard realities of war, death and the meaning of life. Tony has a huge reputation as a banjo teacher and can be found on the Artist Works platform. He also sells banjo socks. They're red, white and blue, apparently. Tony, I, sp- I spent the week um, well, I listened to your brand new album, which mm-hmm. we, I, I do want to talk about because it's 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 very interesting. I'm an Irish guy, so I I know that there was a civil war in the U.S. and I have a fair idea what it was about, but I don't really know an awful lot about it at uh, the detail of it. Right. And you spent twelve years making the album, so I'm curious to hear your explanation behind the the process and the reasoning. Uh, and musically, I guess, what's so interesting about that period for you?
1: Um, the reasoning, well, there was no reasoning at first. I just started writing a tune. I I, um, I started out uh, with the previous album, which is called Great Big World, writing, I wrote two or three songs on there, lyrics for two or three songs, and I've written huge amounts of banjo tunes over the years, but not so many lyrics, lyric-based songs. So I started because I'd done that with the last album, I figured, oh, let me try my hand at writing some lyrics here. And I decided to write uh, a tune about a riverboat gambler, you know, Mississippi riverboat gambler, in the, somewhere in the 1800s. And uh, <clears throat> and I took the Jimmy Rogers Blue Yodel uh, template to base it on, uh, so all I had to deal with was the lyrics.
0: I gave her my heart, but she dealt me a losing hand Got a man for the dance hall.
1: And so I wrote that. And then for some reason, I just felt like writing another tune. And since I was in the mid-1800s already, then there was a, something called the Great Train Robbery, which was where these uh, union spies went down south in northern Georgia and, and commandeered and hijacked a train, which is sort of a hard thing to imagine, hijacking a train. You could kind of like go off to the side or something, but that's what they did, and it didn't work out so well for them because they were captured and hung later on uh, after going for about 70 miles and ran out of steam. So I wrote that tune, and then I started saying, oh, I seem to be hanging out in the mid-1800s here. Maybe this could become something. And then I wrote this song, the Morrow O'Connell thing, uh, which uh, carried me over the sea which uh, became and I don't remember exactly why I went to that I guess I kind of started thinking let's see if I can connect things here and so she's going to come over from Ireland during the potato famine and, uh, <clears throat> Maura Kinnear, and she's going to meet the riverboat gambler and then you know anyway started trying to put these threads together and at that point it started becoming obvious okay I'm going to make this a civil war based story and the more research I did the more it opened up and blossomed into what it became finally which is shall we hope <clears throat> and I'm not I'm not a civil war buff per se you know is what people are really into it and they go to all the battlegrounds and I, I went to the Gettysburg battleground but um you know there were just certain aspects like I wanted to have a an element of um you know, I wanted to talk about slavery. I wanted to address that and I wasn't sure how to approach it. And then I was in um, Asheville, North Carolina, and staying with some friends. And the husband is a, a teacher, history teacher at Warren Wilson College. And he said, hey, tomorrow morning, if you're free, we could go visit the slave graveyard that we're clearing of uh, a lot of shrubbery. And, and I said, yes, I would love to do that. And it was Anyway, I went there and without going into the details, it was a very moving experience. And that became the basis for uh, four of the tunes on the album, Uh, where I had to research what an enslaved uh, burial ceremony would be like. And uh, just talking about, well, I could go into more details, but that's sort of that brought that whole thing to bear. Um, Anyway, that's a long winded answer to your question.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a there's some beautiful music on it. Uh, lovely to see Maura O'Connell, of course, who's a household name in Ireland and I guess right. in the in the folk scene in the, in the US as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I had a chat with Rhiannon Giddens a couple of years ago at Romp, mm-hmm. um, which was really enlightening for me as an Irish musician and a, uh, as a white musician who has grown up playing the banjo, and I always knew that the banjo came from Africa. Uh, I was very taken with the Irish immigrant and the Irish indentured worker story with the Joel Walker Sweeney and the, you know, the, the Irish fiddlers meeting the, and I, I kind of romanticized it in a lot of ways, you mm-hmm. know, and that ragtime and old time and bluegrass music developed out of this. Um, and Rhiannon brought home to me the whitening of Banjo's history. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Um, did it, did, Did that awareness, uh, did that play into this album?
1: The Black Roots and African Roots of the Banjo?
0: Yeah. Not so much. I had
1: done an album in um, 1993, I think it was, uh, called World Turning, where I addressed the history of the banjo. And I started off with an African tune and uh, then did some minstrel tunes, which the influence, the black influence is there with that style and then on from there. I mean, I also knew about the African roots for a long time. Um, but what was really powerful for me in 1990, I went to or 1988, 1992, they had something called the Tennessee Banjo Institute in Lebanon, Tennessee. And, uh, in 1990, they had these guys that were playing minstrel music on the banjo out of books. And I knew what was going on at the turn of the century, like late 1800s, early 1900s, this classic style banjo, but that's as far back as I could take the banjo. And, um, I definitely am interested in history. So when I heard these guys playing minstrel banjo, what are you doing? I mean, it sounded like claw hammer basically. And they say, well, here's this book from 1855 written by a guy named Thomas Briggs. And uh, this is the first banjo instruction book. And listening to their playing, I could hear the African roots and what they were doing. It was just this really powerful experience. So that kind of brought it all the way back because whites weren't playing banjos before the 1840s, let's say maybe 1830s, Joel Walker, Sweeney being the first supposedly uh, to do that. Uh, And so I have uh, this, black character john boston playing a banjo tune playing a minstrel tune um but it was a delicate thing the whole you know here i'm a white guy trying to skirt not skirt but just trying to be sensitive to these issues i'm white and i write this whole little Ford song thing about an enslaved african and these burial things and uh and i talked to the people that were singing on it and and some other people that i'm friends with Am I, like, just way off base with this? Should I just shut this whole thing down? And they said, no, no, it's it's okay what you're doing. And um, But particularly where I have John Boston playing the banjo, he comes to camp, the you know, escapes uh, his enslaver and gets to Union lines. And I had the idea of him playing for the troops. Uh, but then it was sort of like, okay, you just escaped from being enslaved, and now you're going to play for us. And it just seemed like really just very dicey. Uh, and I, I actually had a, another spoken word thing where this lieutenant is saying, say, John, I know you've had a hard time, but can you play for the troops? It would really, uh, you know, help their morale. And then I just uh, decided to c- cut that out. It just felt wrong. But anyway, so I just have him playing the tune, which is really me playing, uh, of course. And, uh, and Guy Davis is singing it. And, uh, and it's sort of like a nonsense song like old Dan Tucker or something, you know, died with a toothache in his heel. And I was just trying to write nonsense lyrics, found a dollar underneath his collar and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But that was, I think I'm getting way off track with your question here. (laughs) uh, And and I do tend to go on. So I apologize for that. But anyway, uh, it it was a delicate issue. And, And so the history of the band didn't really particularly bear on that, except that I know how to play in that minstrel style. And so when I was playing there was, you know, very simplistic because it there was no lead in the song. But I was basically, basically playing and I was playing it on a minstrel, a replica of a minstrel or a banjo.
0: So just go right back to the very start, Tony, what attracted you to banjo? Where did you pick it up? And was it always the instrument for you? Well, I,
1: I took flute lessons. I wish I'd stayed with it because they're so light. You could just <laughs> back, 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 uh, and then piano lessons you know classical then i got the folk music and the guitar and uh, and did that for a year or two took some lessons and then when i was 13 or f- late 13 or 14 um, i heard the kingston trio do a song called charlie well it's called the mta it's about this guy who goes on the boston transit system and there's a banjo solo in there by the kingston trio's banjo player dave guard and i heard that and it was you know Sixteen notes in that solo, the C seventh chord that he played out of G, uh, just made me play the banjo. I just flipped out. I've got to play this instrument, and so I retuned my guitar like a banjo. I got the Pete Seeger banjo instruction book and hectored my parents till they bought me a long-necked oh Christie banjo God. for Christmas that
2: year.
0: Did, did they have any reservations about the banjo?
1: They didn't seem to. They they supported it. You know, they bought the banjo for me. And, no, they were very supportive. And after a while, I realized I don't want to play folk music. I want to play bluegrass once I found out. Oh, there's a guy named Earl Scruggs. Maybe want to get into that. Uh, and then I wanted to get a bluegrass banjo. And they bought me a Gibson Master Tone banjo in 1964 or something like that, which I wish I still had with the bow tie inlays. But uh, anyway... Uh, And so that was it. No, they they were very supportive all the way through uh, with my career. Fortunately.
0: Just to talk a little bit about Earl Scruggs, because he comes up in every single conversation about five string banjo. Was he really the catalyst for everything that we hear today?
1: Yeah, I would say yes. I mean, people were playing the three finger style, which is how he plays them index middle, uh, before him, but he just took it to the next level. Um, his timing was just so outrageous. And you hear, there are these, uh, you can hear these shows from the Grand Ole Opry from 1947, 48, when he was, when he and Lester Flatt were in Bill Monroe's band. And they would introduce him. Now here's, they're introducing Bill Monroe and old Judge Hay, who was probably the announcer on that. He said, now here's Earl Scruggs with that fancy banjo picking. now Earl, you get Brother Bill and let's go. And this is Bill Monroe's band. And all he's talking about is Earl Scruggs. And in some tunes, Bill Monroe would let Earl Scruggs take every solo. There'd be no mandolin solo or fiddle solo, just all banjo. And you can hear the audience going nuts. So it was just like this remarkable thing. A lot of these people had heard banjo before, Uncle Dave Macon or bean or anyone of a number of players that would be on the stage of the Grand Ole Opry, but no one had heard anything like this. Oh, ¶¶ outsized influence and then Flatt and Scruggs got together and you know a lot of it or some of it had to do with Earl's wife Louise because I got friendly with Earl and Louise in his later years and I talked to Louise and she's she was flat and Scruggs manager and people would call in the 50s uh yeah hi uh, I'd like to speak to Earl and you know Louise would pick up I'd like to speak to Earl well uh what's this about well I'd like to book flat and Scruggs well you can talk to me well, I'd rather talk to Earl. Well, you'll talk to me or you'll, you won't get Earl Scruggs because they didn't want to, you know, I can't talk to a woman. I mean, that's unheard of. And so she was very influential as being one of the very first women, you know, certainly down South and in Nashville to be a business person. And, um, and she's the one that had the plant Scruggs, at Carnegie Hall, Carnegie Hall album happen, you know, cause if they would just done the gig, it would have been, um, you know, a nice footnote in their career, but she called Columbia Records and said, let's record this. And they said, oh, how do we do this? Well, you put out some microphones and, you know, <clears throat> I mean, this is what she told me. And then I, I could go on and on, but she had a, uh, the Beverly Hillbillies theme. You know, people wanted to hear that there was no recording of it. So she called Columbia Records and said, let's put this out as a single. And the, a week later, it was out, they recorded it and it was out and it went way up the charts in the country charts, so she she had a big hand in just kind of spreading the influence of Flatt and Scruggs, but just Earl had that timing and the creativity, he wrote songs, really exciting banjo songs, he used the tuners uh, these Scruggs tuners <clears throat> to, to, you know change the tuning while you're playing and um, and he was just kind of the shy kid from North Carolina the, the, the genius, and and just changed the world. For me, I wouldn't be married to the woman I'm married to. I wouldn't, literally, I mean, my whole life would have gone on a different course without Earl Scruggs. Mm-hmm. There are thousands and thousands of people who you could say that about.
0: Was he was he a renegade musically then?
1: Uh, no, I wouldn't call him a renegade, but what he did was very uh, outside the box, I guess you could say. <clears throat> uh, I had a chance to interview him Uh, I don't know, twelve or thirteen years before he passed, and um, because they were putting Columbia was putting out a best of Earl Scruggs album, basically, and Banjo Newsletter wanted me to um, interview him for that. Which, yeah, I got to interview Earl Scruggs, sure, all those questions you always wanted to ask. And I realized listening to the album that the very first song on there was the very first song Earl ever recorded, and it was with Bill Monroe, and it was called "Heavy Traffic Ahead." And he did this very kind of bluesy solo, which he later called Foggy Mountain Special. And I asked him about that. And it's the hardest thing that, you know, if you want to play an Earl Scruggs thing, that's the hardest thing that you would have to play. It's tricky. And he said it was based on a song called Stepping Up and Go, which he called a boogie-woogie tune. And when he was a kid, I guess he heard it on the radio and he loved it and figured out how to play it. So, you know, he's doing boogie-woogie. With Bill Monroe, with Bluegrass. He was doing this sort of not rock thing, but pre rock thing. And plus, he does things in that same Foggy Mountain special, which are coming straight out of swing music, you know, out of Glenn Miller or Benny Goodman. So he's bringing a jazz influence to Bluegrass. And so many years later, people start complaining oh, well, that's not Bluegrass. But Earl Scruggs was doing it early on. Uh, so, but it wasn't. It wasn't off-putting the people. It just was Earl Scruggs and it sounded great. But when you analyze what he was doing, he was doing some very unusual things in that sense. Uh, just the hippest musician, you know, once you dig. And I'm, I'm still digging down after playing banjo for 58 years. I still transcribe his solos. And wow, I never thought to do that. How brilliant is that? You know, just I could spend another two hours in this interview going into details about all the amazing things he's done. So, yeah, I, I, that's, but he was politically, he was a renegade because uh, as the Vietnam War was going on in the early 70s, he he'd left uh, Leicester a couple of years before, but he had put a band together with the Sons and they're playing these peace rallies and he had a peace sign on his banjo strap. Uh, and he was one of the few people in Nashville to come out against the war. So uh, he was on the right side of history with that. <music>
0: You're listening to Inside the Banjaverse in conversation with Tony Trishka.
2: Hello, Pantheon podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them.
0: I was reading on your website earlier a, a, a phrase that jumped out at me it said that um, Tony Trishka has absorbed the slings and arrows of the is it what the traditional bluegrass world. Mm-hmm. And what's always really interested me because uh, about bluegrass music is how jazzy and how um, innovative is the wrong. Well, jazzy is the right word. How out there it gets quite quickly away from very traditional music now i should probably contextualize that question by saying as an irish banjo player traditional irish music is very preserved as a a bookended tradition and it's easy to stray outside of it very very quickly right and you know they are there are the chair snapper equivalents in ireland as well Ah, chair snapper.
1: you gotta remember that that's good yeah yes.
0: <laughs> well that's what somebody told us he says be careful we we called a set the chair snappers delight because yeah. we took a bluegrass tune and mixed it with an irish tune and our sound engineer goes oh the chair snapper is going to hate that one you know <laughs> oh
1: yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I love that phrase thank you that's a great gift you've given me
0: <laughs> you've yeah. always you've always pushed the ba- the the boundaries musically uh
1: yeah Certainly my earliest records were were trying to do, and I'm not even trying to do it. It's just what sort of came naturally Um, because I grew up in Syracuse, New York. I didn't grow up in Kentucky. My father was a physics professor and my mother was, uh, she studied French, whatever. But in the house, we were listening to Thelonious Monk. My father was into that Broadway shows. There's some Stravinsky around of all things. And so I'd be hearing these sounds and my father at night, would as I was going to sleep, he would be playing Fats Waller and Duke Ellington and WC's uh, Claire de Lune. So I, I grew up with all these sounds in my head that weren't bluegrass. Um, and I entered this banjo contest. And I, and I think I just had this predilection for playing weird stuff or something. I don't know why. I was into surrealism with, you know, Salvador Dali and people like that. Uh, that really appealed to me. So things being a little outside the norm. And I entered the very first banjo cante, uh, a banjo contest at the very first three-day Bluegrass Festival in Fincastle, Virginia in 1965. And the judges were Ralph Stanley, uh, um, Lamar Greer, who was playing with Bill Monroe at the time, and Bill Emerson, who was playing with Jimmy Martin. Wonderful banjo players, needless to say. And I got out there and played uh, Nine Pound Hammer, a traditional tune, but with fake Middle Eastern modes. And I could just picture Ralph Stanley going, what? You know. I, I lost badly, I'm sure. I mean, I certainly lost. And the guy who won played Foggy Mountain Breakdown really well, straight ahead, you know, and that's who won, of course. Um, you know, know your audience. Uh, so early on, but then, you know, I'm a child of the 60s and was there with, you know, i buy the Beatles, you know, when Sgt. Pepper came out, I bought it that day. And, you know, all the Beatles were pushing the limits so far. Every album was like a new, wow, who would have thought of Strawberry Fields forever, you know, on and on, all these amazing things that they did. Uh, And, you know, Frank Zappa and uh, a guy named Van Dyke Parks, who actually arranged one of the tunes on the album. You know, people just really, you know, Hendrix, on and on and on. Uh, And so there was this huge creative momentum and moving forward and breaking boundaries. And then I got into jazz and that also was in the same way. And then fusion came along in the early to mid seventies. And I was way into Chick Corea and Mahavishnu Orchestra with John McLaughlin and weather report. And again, that's, this was all new stuff going in a new directions. So I had that mindset. And so on my first album, I have one tune that has electric guitar and drums, cause that's what I was hearing. You know, I mean, that's what I was listening to almost more than bluegrass. And then, uh, Rather than playing three-chord structures, well, I was listening to jazz, and so I'm going to put more chords in there. I wasn't playing jazz or anything like that, but, you know, just, uh, and I was fortunate enough to be living in New York City and being with people. I was in a band with people. It was called Breakfast Special, guys uh, like Andy Statman and Kenny Kosek and Stacey Phillips, who were all coming out of bluegrass like I was, but hearing all these other things. We were all kind of in the same mode. Um, And a group called Country Cooking before that with Pete Warnick and Russ Barenberg and John Miller. And um, again, a similar sort of thing, but it got even more that way when I moved to New York City. So like-minded folks, and we, you know, no one would say, you shouldn't do that. No, don't try that. They would just go along with it. So what did I know? So anyway, my first couple (laughs) albums were really kind of pushing the boundaries of what was acceptable. And so I'd get reviewed in Bluegrass Unlimited and, and, you know, fairly scathing review and some of the other publications. So, yeah, I sort of, um, and I, it was sort of amusing to me because on my second album, after getting all these, you know, scathing reviews of the first one, I, I did Roll My Sweet Baby's Arms with a drum solo, starting with a drum solo. And that's how it kicked off the album. Someone, oh, I hated this first album. At least he's doing bluegrass now. I can't wait to hear. You know, there's a drum solo. So I think I was thumbing my nose at the bluegrass establishment back then, being a young whippersnapper snapper. So, <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> did, did did that attitude uh, sort of temper as the years went by, Tony?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yes. Fortunately, it did, and I, I mean, and as much as I might be thumbing my nose at the Bluegrass establishment. I I mean, I love Bluegrass. I love Bluegrass to this day. Uh, And there are a lot of great bands out there these days, but what really appeals to me is the early stuff, you know, early Bill Monroe and Stanley Brothers and Osborne Brothers and on and on, all those original bands. And, uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to get friendly with some of those people that were my heroes. I I got pretty friendly with Earl Scruggs as time went on. And uh, uh, should I tell this story? yeah, Yeah, I guess I will definitely I don't think I'll drop can I drop the f-bomb maybe sure
0: not. no problem can I do that oh yeah why not all
1: right so I'm on I'm on the phone with Earl and I was asking him a question about why he brought his thumb over to the second string to play foggy, foggy Man breakdown and he said well it felt better and you know he went a, in the, into an explanation of that which I found fascinating and then he started talking about his his book you know which came out in 1968 or thereabouts and he said that his editor called him one day and said, what are we going to call this, uh, Earl, uh, Earl Scruggs three finger style? And he said, and, he, and Earl said to me, "quote I was thinking to myself, what the fuck? It's Scruggs style." And this is when Earl was like 80 or 81, and my big hero. And he felt comfortable enough with me to say, "What the fuck?" <laughs> Earl Scruggs said, "What the fuck?" You know, it was like when the next to the birth of my children and getting married, probably the biggest moment of my life. So it was that was really exciting. So he really looked at it as being scrug style. That's how he looked at it. There's a but better yeah. story. Of being backstage at the opera, Grandpa Jones comes into the scrim and, "Hey, Grandpa, what style do you play?" He said, "Well, I play that frailing claw hammer style." And then Earl Scruggs walks in. "Hey, Earl, what style do you play?" And he said, "Scruggs style." <laughs> yeah, right. It's kind of a Zen thing, but anyway,
0: but it wasn't in an egotistical way.
1: No, not at all. He just looked at it that way. I mean, he it was scrug style. He came up with a lot of those licks, not all of them, but a lot of them, and just reinvented what you could do on a banjo. So yeah, it's fair to say. No, he was not egotistical at all. He was you know, kind of very just did what he did, you know. Didn't and he was again kind of quiet and kind of shy. And, yeah. Is it is
0: it a, is it a technically difficult instrument to play? I've never tried to play five string.
1: You, know, you just strum it as an open G chord, you, you, <laughs> easier than a four string that you play, just Boom, there it is. <laughs> come on. Over our side, come on. Uh, no, it's. I mean, it depends on what you want to do with it. Obviously, you know, to do what you do would be like, oh God, I kind of, you know, it's a whole different context. But, um, I, I always said I could take some anyone off the street, and within an hour, I could have them play something that sounds like Scruggs style, which for the most part is true. Um, you have these right hand rolls, these finger patterns, like thumb, index, thumb, middle. And then you put a slide to it, and that's Cripple Creek right there. And almost anybody can do that. And so, yeah, I, I think it's easy to get off the ground with it, you know, and play some easy things, and it'll sound good. Uh, but if you want to get deep into it, then you know, that's a whole other story. What? Uh, I mean, if I, mean if, if I may, you know, the thing about like Scruggs style. It's pretty easy to be able to play some stuff in Scruggs style, but to play on the level that he played is a whole other thing and with the depth and so subtlety. He was, I asked Earl, or in, in one of these interviews, he said, he volunteered this, I didn't ask him the question. He said that he felt what he brought to the banjo was syncopation, that it wasn't as syncopated. And he, he was almost like a drummer. Some of his syncopations were so hip, going in and out of these different roles and emphasizing certain notes that be way off the beat. Uh, and so that's something that it takes a while to get into playing before you start getting into that level of subtlety, but most people can play some Scruggs style. If you want to play like Bela Fleck, now, now you're talking a different level. It's not, you can't just, okay, I'm going to start playing this concerto that he wrote, uh, you know, or just, you know, a lot of his solos are just like, whoa. Uh, so.
0: But, but you, you taught, you taught Bela right at the start. He was he was 16
1: years old. He'd already taken some lessons from some other folks, but he was doing bluegrass and some fiddle tunes. And uh, my first album had just come out, and uh, you know I was doing all this weird stuff on there, and you know some weird improvisatory ideas. And he was very interested in that, so I showed him the tunes, some of the tunes and some of the improvisatory techniques. And then he would ask me, he would record these lessons and he would ask me to like jam out on a tune for two or three minutes, like Little Maggie or whatever, Foggy Mountain Breakdown, some song. And then he would come back the next week having learned every single note of it. He was so obsessed. you know. Uh, and then, I, and we, neither of us can remember how long he took lessons, a few months, maybe, maybe less, maybe a little bit more, something like that. And after a while, it was sort of like, well, you've got everything from me that I can show you, you know, consciously. And uh, so let's just get together. And we would just get together and jam and exchange ideas and that sort of thing. And then he moved up to Boston and uh, playing with a group called Taste Felix. And uh, I'm spacing the name of the guy right now, but he ended up taking jazz lessons from this uh, clarinet slash sax player up there. Billy Novick was his name and got him into playing modes and scale patterns and all this sort of thing, which I was not getting him into. Uh, And also, uh, playing with his band Tasty Licks, uh, the guitar player got him into playing more straight-ahead Scruggs style, which I had had neglected to show him I could have, but he was just wanting to do all the modern progressive stuff. So uh, I sort of failed him as a teacher in that way, but sort of moved off in this weird direction. So anyway, that's how that all worked out.
0: Mm. (laughs) So you've gone on, uh, I, I want to say recent years, but it's probably quite a long time to really establish... Um, Tony Trishka as a a fantastic banjo teacher and I know you have a whole artist works uh, universe. When did you get into teaching in a big way?
1: Teaching it all? Um, Well I started teaching in 1970 and uh, my first book came out in uh, 1975 I guess Uh, but my very first lesson there was an all-woman bluegrass band in Syracuse, New York where I grew up and where I lived for many years. And the banjo player in the band said, can you give me banjo lessons? And I said, I don't teach. And she said, well, I won't pay you. And it's uh, okay. So great. We'll just go from there. And that's how I got into teaching. And then I started doing one-on-one lessons. And then uh, I wrote my first book in 1975 about melodic banjo. And so by that time I was pretty into teaching. Um, And then started doing some homespun tapes and that kind of a thing. Uh, but it wasn't really until artist works came along that uh, it all kind of solidified. I mean, I was doing it all along. I shouldn't really say that, but it just the new, you know, doing it online. What a great thing I can do this from home. And uh, I got spoiled because, you know, I, very, very occasionally I still give one-on-one lessons. I'm teaching a kid right now who's 13 years old and is playing like Bela stuff and Noam Pichelny stuff. He's 13. He's scary. You know, he came for a, I given him a few lessons and, uh, uh, his name is Nikolai, and uh, you, you'll be hearing from Nikolai, I guarantee you. And uh, I hadn't seen him, in, you know, since the pandemic, I said, "So, wait, how old are you now? You're 15? No, I'm 13." He's a really polite kid. He's doing this amazing stuff. He's, he's transcribing this Mozart aria from one of his from Magic Flute or something, and he's killing it. And It's like, huh? <laughs> you know. Uh, so it's, anyway, the the younger generation, because you know, it's scary when the, people just get better and better and better. Like Baila came along and, you know, that's sort of this gentleman and gentlewoman's agreement. You you can get good, but not that good. And then Nobichelny came along and he's just mind-bending. And now now at least this guy can scare them. So it's it's
0: good. (laughs) Do you feel completely um, kind of hapless as a teacher when you come up against a a, a kid like that that's just a genius?
1: Uh, Well, there's still things I can show him. I mean, he's amazing, but he's He's uh, its kind of hard to say. He started playing class, uh, classic style, like um, parlor style banjo, like marches and rags from like the early 1900s because he was in Arkansas and there was a guy there who was teaching him and that's what he did. So he came out playing this amazing stuff when he was like 12 years old and playing it really well. But then over the years, he's gotten more into bluegrass and then into the more progressive things, which is where his heart is right now. Yeah, I mean, you can always find something, you know, people can do all this progressive stuff, but they may not know Earl. I mean, you know, all the Earl subtlety. You can always go into that. And then I have my own improvisatory techniques that I use that he, you know, probably hadn't picked up on, so I can show him those things. You can always show, no matter how good someone is, there's always something they don't know, you know. Uh, so uh, I've never, I haven't been at a loss yet, but it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're listening to Inside the Banjoverse in conversation with Tony Trishka. Do you still practice, uh, Tony? And is there things that you're trying to improve on all of the time or learn?
1: Yeah, I, I am. In fact, just before um, this interview, right now that we're doing, uh, I'm doing this thing called a banjo summit with a guy named Jake Sheps. It's a it's a progressive banjo weekend, basically, and it's. Virtual, and so i just did a a class with wes corbett he won't be able to doing it this weekend he's playing with sam bush so uh we we pre-recorded a thing just now like an hour ago um and doing these techniques he and i were um yeah we're still exploring stuff all the time uh during the pandemic we would get together do you know wes wes corbett no monstrous player wonderful player again playing with sam bush now and um we decided, you know, a month or two in, let's just get, you know, do Zoom meetings and just come up with ideas and trade ideas back and forth. And so once a week or once every two or three weeks, we get together and, you know, and write down what we were doing and coming up with new techniques. And he would show me something and I'd extend it from on my end and vice versa. And then so we put together this uh, class for this workshop that we did just now, uh, where I wrote all the stuff down that we've been working on over the last year, and uh, teaching people that. So I mean, I have so much to learn still. There's another guy named Adam Larrabee who's a jazz, amazing jazz guitar player and great, applying it to the banjo. He's amazing on the banjo. And uh, he was just showing me some things last week. So this, it doesn't end. It just keeps going. And there's just more and more. And um, I don't get as much time to actually sit and practice as I would like, but I try to teach things on my on artist work site that I want to work on. So it gives me a chance to show them something and then it helps me to learn it, but I I do still practice every day. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. the the, the boundaries still need to be pushed and my techniques needs to improve all the time. So, yeah.
0: So what's your balance usually between teaching and touring say in in normal circumstances, let's say.
1: Yeah. Under normal circumstances, it's maybe 50, 50, maybe, you know, I mean, maybe I'll spend three hours a day teaching, you know, working on the artist work site. Uh, and then it depends, you know, if I'm gone for a week as opposed to a, a day or two. So it's, it's, you know, it's maybe half and half during normal circumstances, something like that. And, and, and I love it, to teach. My father was a physics professor. So I think it's in the gene pool. And I, I really yeah. enjoy it. I learn a lot myself. So
0: yeah. And you have no inclination of slowing down at any stage, Tony
1: now in my advanced years no no plans <laughs> you know it, 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 it's funny because uh, just before the pandemic hit you know a few months before that it was like God, i'm really tired of slapping this banjo it's so friggin' heavy and you know going through another airport and you know trying to get it on on the plane without them making you know gate check it you know, all that stuff and having to rent a car and, da, 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 and you know and all so you can be on stage for an hour or two hours whatever the gig is and So all that goes into it, you know, you, you know, very well. Uh, and so I was just kind of, man, it'd be nice just to be home for a while, but I I can't retire. And then the pandemic hit, so don't blame me per per se, but I'm just, I finally got my wish. I got the gun off the road. So now that these gigs are coming in, I I feel mostly like, yeah, great. Uh, yeah, but I got to do it again, but I I, know I'm, I'm, I'm not slowing down at all. I've got more recording ideas that I can mention. Uh, you know, for future recording projects, some of which are already underway and uh, yeah. And I'm just going to keep playing as long as I can, as long as the fingers hold up and uh, people want to hear what I do. Sure. I'm not, I'm not going to slow down.
0: You, you must've seen huge changes over the years in touring. And I'm even thinking in terms of the commerciality of the music, because it's, a, it's very healthy right now, but I, I I'm assuming it wasn't always that way. <sighs>
1: uh you know i honestly haven't seen i'm trying to let me go back to 1970 Uh, i i don't i don't see that much of a change over the years in terms of my career i don't see suddenly. okay now i'm getting 500 gigs a, a year and the week the year before it was 20 gigs it's just been sort of slow and steady you know through recessions and pandemics well okay forget the pandemic but you know in general i've just always kind of cruised along you know done pretty well. Uh, the gigs have been there and uh, I don't think I've ever felt a drought of gigs or something like that. The music itself of course, you know, since we're talking about banjos here you know, you have uh, you know, you have things like the Beverly Hillbillies that's how Bailey got into the banjo. It's sort of like you get this big burst, one thing and then suddenly everyone gets into that and then Bonnie and Clyde, that was another one. A lot of people, oh Foggy Mountain Breakdown and those car chases, I gotta play the banjo. And then Dueling Banjos was another one. So you have those like those three big explosions of people. Oh, man, I love the banjo. I've got to get into this. Uh, And then in more recent times, Steve Martin getting back into the banjo in a pretty big way uh, and touring with the Steep Canyon Rangers. And a lot of people on my site, you know, there's a little place where you can say, how would you get started? Well, Steve Martin, I heard Steve Martin play, you know, on television or in front of, you know, 3000 people. So he's done a lot in recent times to really help propel the banjo forward in a more steady way over time and he put out two albums of just banjo music uh you know starting eight years ago nine years ago whatever it was so that that had a big influence
0: Hmm. did you see did you see would you have thought that mumford and sons had any influence in people being interested in banjo
1: it probably helped some uh i I can't say exactly how much because it's sort of a different scene and I, i think you know here and there. You know, I don't always know how people got into the banjo. I mean, I'm sort of on the front lines of teaching, so people will sometimes say, and I, I think some people have talked about that, that uh, they've gotten into it through Mumford & Sons, yeah. Yeah.
0: Does Does your wife play banjo? Or play banjo? Does your wife play music, Tony?
1: Uh, no, she's not, she does not, but she's got a great musical sense, and uh, she, she was a teacher for 25 years and has retired since. But she would... Um, she would I play her tune, a new tune. She said, oh, that sounds really nice, but you, you got to put some more space in it. put a, you know, put a pause in there because you know, I'm a banjo player and I did, you know, <laughs> and so she'll, she'll make suggestions like that. And I will put a pause in there and it sounds better. So she's, she's got actually really good musical sensibilities. And she had a concert series uh, here in our town, Fairlawn, New Jersey, uh, for a few, well, four or five years. And she brought in like Del McCurry and Peter Rowan and, you know Loudon Wayne right Pete Seeger, you know like a list people on, uh, on the scene uh so she loves music and has done a lot to promote it here and gives me all sorts of great ideas so she's uh I'm married up as we like to say
0: <laughs> all banjo players married up Tony if they get managed to get married at all you as well oh very much so yeah <laughs> i'm told I, I get i get told that regularly so Not by I. my wife, by other people.
1: <laughs> I so do I, so do I. We're in the same boat.
0: So, oh, you, you strike me as somebody that has uh, a lot of uh, self confidence. Do you do you struggle with any kind of inner critic or self doubt musically?
1: Wow, someone. I, I'm going to answer that question. I, I did an interview, I know, a couple of weeks ago for this album, and someone said, okay. Uh, what is the question that no one has ever asked you before? And I said, I can't think of that of one, you know, that's, no one has ever asked me that. (laughs) Literally no one's ever asked me that because you're, you're supposed to be self-confident. Of course, I never have any crises of confidence. Yes, I do. Of course. I'm very Mm self-critical when I'm playing. Uh, When I listen back, I, you know, I mean, I generally like the way I play. Let's put it that way. This is, it brings up an interesting point. This guy, John Miller, who was in our band, Country Cooking, wonderful, he played bass in the band, but he's a wonderful guitar player, played country blues and this sort of thing. And someone, he said that, someone asked him once, who's your favorite guitar player? And he said, me, I'm my favorite guitar player. And he was not an egotist. It was just like, I play what I want to hear. And uh, <clears throat> I won't say that for me. I'd much rather hear Earl, Earl Scruggs than me. And I love hearing Bale and everyone in the home and everybody else in West. West uh, and Sonny Osborne on and on but I like I do like what I play for the most part not always uh, because I play what I want to hear what I want to play I'm not saying my 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 favorite banjo player but having said that I'm very self-critical because I used to play you know, I played, a l- I, take, I would take a lot of chances, let's put it that. I was going to say I play a lot of harebrained stuff, <laughs> but I would take a lot of chances, and I still do, and uh, and I do that when I jam out at the end of a response in my artist works lessons, and there are times when I'll just fall off the band, I won't completely stop, you know, like, but I'll uh, barely making it through, um, because there are different ways to approach it. Earl Scruggs played Scrugg style and he played within a certain, certain parameters. He would change within those parameters in subtle ways, but with me, I can play Scruggs style or melodic or single string or these different styles. And I don't know what's going to come out next. Uh, and so uh, I do these classes on improvisation, sometimes at workshops. And I, for one of the workshops I started writing down comments by jazz players, how they approach improvisation. And one guy was saying, uh, I never improvise. I only improvise if I make a mistake and have to get out of it. Otherwise, I know exactly what I'm going to play all the time. And then Chick Corea, in this interview I found, said he he doesn't know what he's going to play half the time. He just, you know, and he said when Miles Davis would say, "Play play what you don't know, what he meant was, you know, rather than planning, just start playing and see what comes out. And that's how I approach it. And in fact, a couple of years, maybe three years ago or so, I started getting nervous on stage because I'm about to take a solo, you know. And I have no idea what I'm going to play. I was like, which is how I've always played it. But suddenly it sort of really struck me. Wait, I don't know. what And, I, you know, I didn't, I, I did it and it worked and it was okay. But I was like getting that little trepidatious moment. Like, uh. So anyway, I'm really long-winded. I'm sorry. but <laughs> That's a great answer. I just go on and on. But yeah, basically I do have... Yeah, I'm I'm
0: very self-critical when I'm playing. So let's say you're speaking about variation there, which I I, I de- almost desperately want to learn more about. So you know, I grew up for so many years playing Irish music, and and really confined in the modality of Irish music, which is very like an old-time fiddle tune. Sure. So. For somebody like me, I always feel that I didn't learn all of the different musical modes and scales and chords and everything that would give me, you know, different paths that I could take on the banjo. If perchance I came across a situation where I had to play a solo in a tune, Uh, I normally go completely Blank inside, white on the outside, and go. Oh, holy God! And then just go to loads of tremolo, which I could do better than anybody else, and that kind of saves my bacon. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. where, where would, where would one start?
1: To have a technical knowledge, is that what you? Yeah, to, like, almost
0: like to have a, a musical knowledge. knowledge. Yeah, yeah
1: um, I would say scale patterns, playing scale patterns, which it's all over Irish music. You know, you know, Blackberry Blossom or you know. Uh, uh, uh or arkansas traveler I mean, i'm an american but you see it all the time in celtic music too I, i'm sure it's the scale patterns built into these tunes um but scale patterns is a great great thing to do for just learning the fingerboard and you know and, and getting your fingers to do things they wouldn't ordinarily do uh and i'm not done a ton of it i've done i've done enough of it that i can do scale patterns and use them you know and cut them up and Cut and paste and use them in different ways. And then of course learning the modes, which I have not done. Uh I've I've done a few on the site. So for my own information, oh yeah. But uh I don't think in those terms, I'm much looser than that. But it would it would help for sure. Uh learning the modes and and you know, mix Lydian mode is the flatted seventh and Lydian mode is the sharp four, uh, some of which have lots of applications and some have less applications depending on what you're playing, but it's great for composing. think okay i'm only going to play this set of notes in this way Uh, but i think those are the two main things i would say and i'm sure other people would give you other answers and these are things that i have not done religiously myself especially with the modes but those two things i think can can really help open up a lot of doors and a lot of possibilities just those alone
0: you're listening to inside the Banjaverse in conversation with tony trishka So, what what excites you most about performing?
1: It's another question I don't think I get asked a lot. I guess I I think, um, just when the band is just kicking butt, you know, like you're in a regular band. How long have you been together? Years.
0: Uh, oh, nearly ten years. Yeah.
1: Ten years. Okay, yeah. And I haven't been in a regular band since 1989. I was in this band called skyline through the reagan administration we were together for 10 years and we could walk on stage and i knew it would sound good because we knew the material we've been on the road for years and it would just work just as you know the same thing uh and then since then i've not had a real regular band i had an electric band for a while we, we played for a couple of years and it was that sort of thing but uh for years now i've just sort of put bands together uh and there's a guitar player named michael davis who's all over the shell we hope album an incredible singer and wonderful guitar player. And uh I know I can do a gig with him. And there are other people that know my material that I can say, hey, are you free on this date? Because I don't have a regular band. Um and you know I put bands together, but when it's it's really cooking, it's nothing like it. You know, when the groove is there and the audience is energized, it's great. You know, so those those are those are exciting times. And there are times when you know moments when you just come upon something you'd never played before it's just like wow i just had a great solo there you know <laughs> to pat myself on the back that was really nice i really enjoyed that and you got to keep playing so you can't really reach over the page <laughs> yeah, but, but yeah, i imagine you would say the same thing probably i'm sure you have times when you're just playing it just it all falls together and
0: yeah it's usually when i'm not thinking about it
1: yeah yeah that's and you can't predict these things. And you, you can come off stage after a gig and hey, man, that was the best gig we played in years. And someone else would say, "Oh, we sucked. We sounded terrible." <laughs> Everyone's perception is different, you know. <laughs> and, I, and I've had that. I did a I had this band that I was we put together called the Big Dogs, and uh, we had a chance to play at the Birchmere in uh, Alexandria, Virginia. You know, this major bluegrass place and uh they were they were going to record it for or i think it was live satellite transmission all these different markets you know, it was like this big gig and the place was full and just before we went on stage a little before that i had a falling out with our mandolin player and it was my band so i had to get up there and and put on a happy face and mc the show and then at the end of the show it was like oh god that sucked and it was all over the satellite da, da, da. and then some years later there's uh, this guy in the Netherlands had um, a, a record company called Strictly Country. And he had, a, from his house, he had house concerts and uh, the home of Strictly Country. Anyway, he got in touch and said, you know, I want to put this out as an album, that satellite feed you guys did at the Birchmere. One. Uh, let me listen to it. And, and I heard it back and it sounded pretty good. And he put it out. But my perception at the time was, this sucks. Oh, God. So... <laughs> I shouldn't have said the name of the band because that sort of tips off who the main player might have been. But
0: <laughs> well, did, did you fall back in again after falling out?
1: Yes, we did fall back in. Yes, I love him like the brother I never had. No, uh, uh, he passed, unfortunately. But anyway, that's another story. OK,
0: but yeah. So one last question, Tony. When When we get back out into the world, is there a venue, a concert? Have you a dream show that you want to do?
1: Uh, I'd like to play Carnegie Hall. It's, it's a bucket list thing. I've, I've I've had a chance to play Madison Square Garden. We, uh, Bail and I, participated in this uh, Pete Seeger's ninetieth birthday celebration, and Bruce Springsteen was there. It was like this big deal, and we got to get up in front of a packed house at Madison Square Garden and play a couple of Pete Seeger tunes, which was really one of them, really a wonderful time. It's on YouTube somewhere, <clears throat> um, and I'd never played the opera. And I have this woman who does a uh, promotion for me who said, Oh, well, Carla, she did this. She put us together. And she said, Hey, have you ever played the Opry? And I said, no, but I'd sure like to. Okay. Two days later, she called back, okay, you're book for the Opry on such. So anyway, this was a few couple of years ago. And so I've done that twice once at the Ryman and once at the more modern place. And then what the Opry, you get to play the Opry, man, what a great thing. And we had a great reception. So that was a real magical time, playing the first time on the Opry. Uh, but I guess Carnegie Hall, just having never played there, was sort of a bucket list. I'd like to play Carnegie Hall sometime. Mm.
0: But, yeah. Wonderful. Tony, thank yeah. you so much for your time. Where can people find out about you and artist works and the new album?
1: Uh, well, com. Go there. T-R-I-S-C-H-K-A. Spell it any way you want. But yeah, that'll, that'll get you there. And it's all there. <laughs> it's all there. I got a store there. You can buy banjo socks as well. So,
0: I've heard about the banjo socks. Yes.
1: Now, if I get your address, if you want to email that to me or whatever, I will send you a pair of socks.
0: I I'll will do them. this. I'll wear them with pride.
1: <laughs> They're red, white, and blue. We had two two, uh, two styles, kind of purple and blue, which I like, and then the American Banjo Museum wanted to sell them, so we Red, white, and blue. So you'll be getting red, white, and blue socks because that's all I've got now. <laughs>
0: Oh, listen, thanks for taking the time to chat. Um, Thank
1: you. This has been a joy. I've really, really enjoyed this.
0: Thank you for listening. If you loved this episode, please head over to our website, webanjo 3com to subscribe, rate, and do leave us a review. It makes a huge difference. See you next time, Inside the Banjo.